0: We started talking about it and of course neither of us wanted to give it up and then I remembered a lesson I had learned in Sunday school at church about Solomon cutting the baby in half and I said I think I know the answer. We will cut the go-kart in half and each one of us will take half the go-kart. He said agreed and we cut the go-kart in half. (laughs) We cut the stupid go-kart in half. Welcome to Church of the Rock, from Winnipeg. Stay tuned to this week's thought-provoking message from Pastor Mark Hughes. So today I'm concluding the, service, the series rather that I started a few weeks ago called Solid Rock or Sinking Sand. And what we did, we were looking at the parable of the building on the rock and building on the sand that Jesus tells us in the Sermon on the Mount. And I kind of look at it this way. He describes only two kinds of people, the rock dwellers and the sand dwellers. And of course, this is what he said. He said, he who hears my word and does it is like the wise man who builds his house upon the rock. And he who hears my word and doesn't do it is like the foolish man who builds his house upon the sand. And then he went on and said this. And he said, and when the rains and the storms come. Notice how he didn't say if. It's not a matter if, if storms are going to come in life. It's when the storms come in life. And he says those storms are going to come. And when those storms come, that house that's built on the sand, meaning your life, that house is going to come down. And the fall of that house shall be great, is what he said. And so when we look at scripture, it's amusing to me how many storm stories there are. Have you noticed that? There's a lot of storm stories. I mean, the big one, of course, is Noah's flood. Pretty big storm. But there's other big storms. We have the book of Jonah. The book of Jonah is a story of a a storm, right? Jonah got caught in the storm. They threw him overboard. Got swallowed by a great fish. It's pretty dramatic. Uh, We we look in the New Testament. We see Paul with his incredible journey on the Mediterranean Sea. And he's shipwrecked. And everybody miraculously is saved. And they they are shipwrecked and land on the island of Malta then we have Jesus in the Gospels continually inviting his disciples to go sailing at night in storms. Have you noticed that? He doesn't do it once. He keeps on doing it. I mean, he says, let's cross over to the other side. They go over to the other side only to be caught in the middle of the night in the middle of a storm. And where's Jesus? Sleeping. I think, is he just like messing with these guys that he keeps on leading them out into storms? Or was he maybe, just maybe, trying to teach them something that you will have the storms of life. And if these guys are going to be any value, any good ministry, they're going to have to learn how to handle the storms and the adversities of life. And that's what this is all about. It's about building your life, building your house upon the rock, so that when the storms come, not if, you will be able to stand. So each week I've been starting off with a true life story of building your house on the sand haven't been telling story about building on the rock cuz those are kind of boring the ones on the sand are interesting stories so When I grew up, my father owned a family cottage on Lake Manitoba on Delta Beach. Does anybody know Delta Beach? Has Anybody been there? A few hands have been there. And here's a picture of where it is in case you're wondering. So there's uh, Portage La Prairie, 15 miles north is Delta Beach. You can see this long skinny beach. It's literally a delta. That's why it's called Delta Beach. You have this huge Lake Manitoba above it. And then you have all that blue there is Delta Marsh. And the only thing separating the marsh from the lake is this strip of sand, and there's one ring of cottages along this beach. Now, it was a fantastic place to grow up as a kid. The beach was immense. Uh, Here's a picture of it. When the south wind came, the beach just went out for, and I'm not joking, it could go out a a quarter of a mile. it's because Delta Beach, the water is so incredibly shallow there. I mean, on a normal day, You could walk 100 yards, and you're only up to your ankles. You walk a quarter of a mile, you're only up to your waist. It was pretty much impossible to drown in this lake. But you couldn't swim in it either, so that's another problem. Anyway, we grew up on this lake. It was great fun. Here's a picture way, way back when, black and white, and we're playing volleyball in the water. You can see it's only ankle deep. and So that was sort of the characteristic of this place, was how shallow the water was. But I'll never forget because something happened in 1970. So you remember that Winnipeg got the floodway where they rooted the water of the Red River around the city of Winnipeg in case for a flood year, the city would be protected. But the second thing they did in 1970 was they built a something called the portage diversion. A lot of people, a lot of Manitobans, don't even know this exists, but it did. So here's a little picture of it, where it is. This is right north of, of Portage of Prairie. There's this massive diversion where they take the Red River and they send it north to Lake Manitoba. Here's a picture of this, this channel. It's a huge channel that can take a, an immense amount of water. And so in a flood year, they will route this water away from Winnipeg, which would end up, of course, in the Red River, and eventually it would end up in the, uh, Lake Winnipeg. But here's what they're doing is they're re-rooting it into Lake Manitoba, which of course is changing the watershed, right? And so here's the outlet. This is where the water comes and it pours into Delta Beach. And I remember when this happened in 1970. I remember driving down to this exact spot right here and we were standing there and my dad was looking at it. Now, let me tell you something about my dad. He was, a, he was a lawyer, he was very smart, but the thing that got me about my dad was people see what they see. My, my father always saw what was going to be. He had this ability to see beyond and see something other people didn't see. And I remember we were standing at that outlet with that water coming into the lake, and he said this, he said, this is gonna ruin our lake. He said, this is gonna ruin the beach, we're gonna lose our beach, and eventually we're going to lose our cottage. That's what he said. I remember that, that very day he was having a discussion with some of the other men, the fathers on the beach, and I was overhearing it, and they were disagreeing with him. They said, this, this lake is 160 miles long, 200 kilometers long. It's an immense lake. It's going to take whatever amount of water you bring into it. My dad said, but look how shallow it is. It is so shallow. It's going to take nothing in order for these waters to come up. So my dad was so convinced this was going to happen that every year he'd pointed out to us kids, he'd say, look where the water line is. It's a foot higher than it was last year. And that water line moved and it moved and moved. And after seven or eight years, my father just, out from underneath of us, sold the cottage. He just sold it. He was not going to be the foolish man who had his house built on the sand. And we went out to Lake of the Woods where you build your cottage on a rock. That's what happened. That's that strange, isn't it? So anyway, so then we left, le- left Delta Beach, and I hadn't returned for many, many years. So it was about 10 years later, and I'm now married to Kathy, and I said, you know what, let's go out to Delta Beach. I'll show you where we grew up uh, on Delta Beach, show, us, show you the place. And so, so we drove out there, and we walked out onto the beach only to discover that the beach was gone. And here's a picture of what, what the water line looks like now. The, the, what they did, it used to be you could walk out of your cottage, you're right on the beach, there's no rocks, everybody has a breakwater, everybody has like a seawall of sorts, the water comes right up to the decks and to the cottages and whatever, and then I went and showed her my cottage that I grew up in, here it is, and you've got these massive boulders in front of it that never existed before, and this giant bridge that goes over to go down to into what little bit was left of the beach. And I was shocked at what happened. And and then I remembered what my dad had said. I remember my dad had predicted this years ago and it was the reason he sold this place. So 2011, there's this huge flood in the Assiniboine River Basin and these waters are going everywhere. It comes into Lake Manitoba and the lake and the marsh become one body of water. Every single cottage was flooded and many of them were destroyed. And Jesus said, he who builds his house on the sand is a foolish man, and the fall of that house shall be great. Now, obviously, I don't care if you have a beach house somewhere. Good for you. The beach is lovely. I'm just saying, when it comes to our personal life, these are the stories that I want imprinted into your head that what happens is that our lives have got to be built on the rock if we're going to sustain and survive the storms and adversities of life. So we've talked about a few things in this message series. We've talked about freedom. We've talked about truth. Today I want to talk about wisdom. Because he talks about the wise man and the foolish man. In fact, he, he builds this kind of antithetical construct, doesn't he? He says that you have the wise man building his house on the rock, and he will stand. And then you have the opposite on the other side, the foolish man building his house on the sand, and his house will fall. And so then we want to obviously be the wise man. And so I want to give you a definition. It's going to take me a few minutes to get there, but we're going to have to talk about what is it to be wise. Because I'm not sure that people fully know. So there's this ancient proverb and it goes like this. It says, he who doesn't know and doesn't know that he doesn't know is a fool, shun him. And he who doesn't know but knows that he doesn't know is a simpleton, teach him. But he who knows and doesn't know that he knows and uh, is asleep, a awaken. But he who knows that he knows is a wise man, follow him. And so he, here's the problem with this, it conflates knowledge and wisdom. He who knows that he knows is a wise man, follow him. Well, that's saying that the wise man is someone with knowledge, and the problem with that is it's not true. That there's a big difference between knowledge and wisdom. And here's how I define it, it's my simple definition, is that, that knowledge is knowing stuff, and wisdom is knowing what to do with the stuff that you know. Like, like someone said to me just this morning, they, they said that knowledge is knowing that a tomato is a fruit, but wisdom is not putting it in the fruit salad. <laughs> and, and so there's a big difference between knowledge and wisdom, and sometimes we get stuck on that. And here, here's the challenge with this. Because we sometimes think that because people are smart, that that means they're wise. Not necessarily true. And we also think because people are dumb, that makes them a fool. It's not true. I know smart people who are are not very wise, and I know dumb people that are nobody's fool. And so let's start with what it means to be a fool, and then I'll talk about what it is to be wise, because the scripture describes and defines what a fool is. It's all the way through the Proverbs. Proverbs 14.1 says this, he who says there is no God is a fool. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. It's that simple. So people who deny God, the scripture says that those people are fools. The writer, the Greek writer Homer, he said this, never, ever, ever was a wicked man wise. And so that's what a fool is. A fool is someone who says there is no God. So let's kind of find out what it is therefore to have wisdom. So here we are, we're in, Proverbs chapter 9, verse 8, and it says this. Do not correct a scoffer, lest he hate you. Rebuke a wise man, and he will love you. Give instruction to a wise man, and he will be still wiser. Teach a just man, and he will increase in learning. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. For by me, your days will be multiplied, and the years of your life will be added to you." So he begins by saying this. Don't even bother correcting a scoffer or a fool, because they're just going to hate you. Probably every one of you has had this experience in life, have you not? Pearls before swine, right? He says, but on the other hand, if you rebuke a wise man, he will love you, and he will become wiser. And not only that, but that wisdom that he gains will add years to his life. That's what it says, right? I'm not paraphrasing this, but that's what it it says. So here's where we're going with this, because he tells us a couple of things about wisdom, what wisdom is and how we get wisdom. I'm going to throw it up on the screen so you're real clear on it. Number one, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And number two, the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. So we're going to begin with this idea that wisdom's going to come eventually if you begin with the fear of the Lord. So let's take a little bit of a deep dive into the Old Testament. Let me ask you this question. I think you know the answer. Who was the wisest man in Scripture? Who does the Bible say was the wisest man? What was his name? Yeah, it was King Solomon. He was the wisest man. And, I, and you remember the story, don't you? Uh, he asked for wisdom. He had this dream. God said, ask what you will. He says, I want wisdom to lead this people. God was so happy that he didn't ask for riches and honor that he gave him wisdom and riches and honor as well. And then the emblematic story, the quintessential example of that wisdom, you all remember, it was the story of cutting the baby in half. Remember that story? Cra- crazy story, isn't it? So I know you know the story, but let's roll through it anyway. So you have these two women. They have these babies roughly around the same time, and then one rolls over, <laughs> I know I shouldn't laugh, rolls over on her, on her baby, suffocates the baby, and realizes the baby's dead, so she swaps out for the other woman's baby. So now they're arguing about it. I think a mother knows which one's her baby. I think people know. But anyway, so they're arguing about which baby is, belongs to which mother, and they're going on because there's only one alive. And so eventually they couldn't agree amongst themselves, so they brought it before King Solomon. So King Solomon sees two women, one baby, and he has to figure out, because he's the one who has to judge in this situation, who belongs to the baby. Now, here's my question. Did he have knowledge as to what was what? No, he didn't know. He didn't know whose baby it was. How would he know? He had no knowledge of that. No understanding of who the baby belonged to. So then he was going to have to employ wisdom to figure out it out and so his wisdom was well it's a simple solution we'll just cut the baby in half we'll give half to each mother and problem solved and everybody's happy (laughs) I mean tell me this isn't a bizarre story it's a bizarre story anyway so this is what he he says and immediately the woman who was the true mother said let the other woman have it and then Solomon gave it to that woman because he knew that the one who was the true mother would save the child, even if that meant giving that child up. So that was the wisdom of Solomon, as it were. And I have a true life example of this where I employed the exact same thing, and it worked perfectly. So let me tell you the story. So when I was in grade four, five, and six, my best friend was a guy named Randy, and we did everything together. He lived half a block away from me, we went to school together every day, we hung out every day, and uh, we did everything together. And then when we were in grade six, there was this big craze in our neighborhood. Everybody was building go-karts and racing go-karts around the neighborhood. So Randy and I decided to pool our allowances and build one go-kart together. You needed two people because they had no motors. You had one person drive, the other person pushed, and then you swapped. So you needed a team anyway. So we built this fantastic go-kart. We bought an axles and we bought wheels and we built this go-kart. We painted it blue with a gold stripe. We called it the blue bomb after the Winnipeg Blue Bombers. And it was easily the prettiest go-kart in the neighborhood. Not the fastest, but that had a little bit to do with us. So anyway, what happened, we had this go-kart, as I said, and then we moved into grade seven, we're now in junior high, and uh, Randy decides he doesn't wanna be my friend anymore. And he comes and he tells me that he has found cooler people in the school than me. Now, I know nobody in this room believes that's possible, (laughs) Because whatever room I'm in, I'm clearly always the coolest person. So we all know that part of the story's fault. But anyway, he comes and he says, basically he broke up with me. We had been best friends for three years, and he says, I'm not gonna be your friend anymore. We were breaking up. Now, this was a good experience for me because over the next eight or 10 years, I was gonna have a lot of girls break up with me. So this was really good practice for me to get used to that. So anyway, you know, guys are pretty dopey. And so I was actually okay with it. If he wanted to break up with me and if he didn't wanna be my friend anymore, guys are, it's not like women. I mean, we're so dopey. And I went, okay. We don't have to be friends anymore. But then it brought up the issue of the go-kart. This had to be resolved. So we started talking about it, and of course neither of us wanted to give it up. And then I remembered a lesson I had learned in Sunday school at church about Solomon cutting the baby in half. And I said, I think I know the answer. We will cut the go-kart in half, and each one of us will take half the go-kart. He said, agreed, and we cut the go-kart half. <laughs> We cut the stupid go-kart in half, and he took the back half and I took the front half, and I had it sitting in the garage. I'll never remember, forget, my, my dad came home from work, and he drives into the garage and he sees a half a go-kart cut, cut in half of a saw. And so he comes and he says, Mark, what, what's with the half go-kart? So I sort of enthusiastically tell him the story, and I'm sort of proud of it because I thought it was pretty intelligent. And, and he looked at me and he said, what is wrong with you? He says, what kind of son am I raising? Are you are you really this dumb? And I said, well, what were we supposed to do? We were no longer, no longer going to be friends anymore, and, and we both wanted the go-kart, so we cut it in half. What else was I supposed to do? He said, why didn't you just give it to him, and, and then at least one of you would have a, go, a whole go-kart? I said, well, I didn't think of that. That's why, <laughs> that's why we didn't do it. But here's the good news for you. I have a verse for you. I'm not done my Free of the Lord thing yet. Not even into it yet. So, we're in James chapter 1. I want to show you a big promise. Because I think, I think some of us look at Solomon and we go, "It's kind of a crummy deal. Good deal for him. Crummy deal for us. All he did was ask the Lord for wisdom and he got wisdom. Look at James chapter 1 verse 5. If anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives it liberally and without reproach and it will be given to him. Isn't that the same promise that Solomon had? That if you lack wisdom, you can ask and he's going to give you Wisdom, how do you think that's a pretty swell promise? Now, let me ask you this question. Because how many, first of all, how many of you have actually asked for wisdom at some point in your life from God? How many? A quarter of you? This is really scary stuff. (laughs) I'll talk to the quarter of you that raised your hand that you've actually asked for wisdom. So out of you people that say you've actually asked God, how many of you noticed you you haven't been quite as smart as Solomon? (laughs) I got even more hands hands than last time. and I don't know how that's possible. And so, so what's missing? I'll tell you what's missing. Because we know that the scripture said the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Even though Solomon is purportedly the wisest man that ever lived, if you go read the Proverbs, which is the wisdom of Solomon, you actually discover that the first nine Proverbs were actually the wisdom of his father. And he's repeating the wisdom that King David, his father, taught him. And it's nine chapters, and one of them we just read, nine chapters on wisdom. And King David said this. He said that wisdom is the principal thing. In all you're getting, get wisdom, and in all your wisdom, get understanding. And so he drills it into him in nine chapters about what it is to be wise. And several times in the midst of it, he says this the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And if anybody knew this, It was David. I mean, why why was David the consummate king? Why was he able to do the the things he was able? How was was it that this kid had this understanding of military acumen at a very young age that he could defeat Goliath and defeat the Philistines and defeat the Jebusites to take over the city of Jerusalem? How did he know? And the answer is he was a man after God's own heart. And he relied fully and wholly on the Lord and he did not do it in his own strength. Remember what he said to Goliath? You come with spear and spear and sword and javelin. I come to you in the name of the Lord of the host of the armies of Israel. He knew he wasn't doing it on his own. And it was the fear of the Lord that was the beginning, the core of his wisdom, this reverence and this understanding that God was providential and awesome and sovereign and that all great things come down from above and he knew that. And every time he lost the fear of the Lord, those were the moments that he fell into great disarray. His greatest blunders, every one of them, were when he lost the fear of the Lord. And if we're ever going to be really wise according to Scripture, we have to begin with that sense of reverence and awe and wonder about God. And always remember it's about him, not us. So that's the first thing. second thing is this. The knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. So, I want you to be really clear about this. He says, the knowledge of the Holy One, not the knowledge about the Holy One. And see, there's a big difference between the knowledge of God and the knowledge about God. And a lot of people know about God, but do they know of God? And here's the conclusion to this see, a lot of people think if I memorize Scripture and if I keep all the laws and rules and regulations, then I'll be wise. And if we learn nothing from Scripture, we discovered what? That the Pharisees were not wise people, they were smart. They knew the rules, they kept all the rules, but they were not wise. Because they didn't have a knowledge of God, they had a knowledge about God. And I think the conclusion of this is that rules do not create wisdom. You can't, you can't rule people into wisdom. That's why tyrants and dictators love rules. You know that? They love rules because you can, people are compliant with rules. And that's never what God's intent really was. And it's kind of weird because we look at our culture today, and our culture loves rules. Have you noticed that? I mean, we're supposed to be in a democracy where the rule of the people, yet why do we have so many laws? There are tens of thousands of laws on the books in Canada, tens of thousands of laws on the books in the US, every state, every province, every city, every municipality, laws upon laws upon laws upon laws, and we are ruled by laws, and these laws don't make any, us any wiser. Yeah, let me give you a couple examples. Do you know that there's a law on the books in Idaho that is, is illegal to give your fiance a box of chocolates over 50 pounds? <laughs> now, and my question for you is this, like, is this like a big problem in Idaho? Are, are like, are like, like these potato farmers like buying too big a boxes of chocolates for people? Or who is that one potato farmer that did this? And so they had to bring down a law for that. Do you know in Alabama, there is a law that it is illegal to drive your car blindfolded? (laughs) My question is, is that necessary? Do we really need a law about that? I'm just wondering, like, has that been a big problem in Alabama, people driving around with blindfolds? We better pass a law on that. And this this is my favorite one. So in Waynesboro, Indiana, there is a bylaw still on the books today. Uh, Waynesboro, uh, Virginia, rather, on the books today, and a woman may not drive a car down Main Street unless her husband walks in front of the car waving a red flag. <laughs> and so I know what you're thinking. You're saying, well, isn't that what God did? Didn't God give us a bunch of rules and regulations? Wasn't there all these laws in the Old Testament to control people? No, actually not. I'm going to play this out for you for a second. So we, we do have civic laws, religious laws. God was building a community. He was sending them to the promised land. And so he wanted to have some structure. And then he gave them some moral laws on Mount Sinai. How many remember how many there were? Ten. It was only ten. Ten moral laws. Ten commandments. And I know people say, they go, oh, the Ten Commandments. How am I ever going to keep these Ten Commandments? There's so many of them. And they're so hard. Really, are they that hard? Are you having trouble with the murder one? The thou shalt not murder? Are you finding that constricting? Are some of you thinking, I don't think I'll get through the week if I don't murder? How many feel like you couldn't get through a week without murdering someone? Why are people putting up their hands for this? And, and sir, I would keep one eye awake at night if I'm sleeping with that woman, but just saying. No, no, I mean, you know, I think you can make it a week. I think you can go through a month. I've, I don't know if you know this, I've gone my whole life and never had to kill anybody. <laughs> I'm not saying I didn't want to, but I've managed, <laughs> but I've managed to live my whole life. So, so you know, c- could you get through life without committing adultery? Don't answer that, some of you, but, <laughs> but, but I think for most of us we can. I mean, do you think it'd be possible, just going out on a limb here. Do you think it'd be possible for you to earn a living without stealing stuff? Yeah, 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 it is. And see, here's the the way we look at it. People think the the Ten Commandments is like a tightrope, and that we're, oh, God's got all these rules, the Ten Commandments, oh, I can barely keep them, thou shalt not murder, oh, I'm having trouble with that one, thou shalt not commit adultery, oh, that's not the way I look at it. it. Isn't a tightrope? I find I have lots of room to maneuver within the Ten Commandments. In fact, you know how I see it? I see it as these guardrails that are way out on the edge of the highway, a super highway, and you have this guardrail. You know what guardrails are for? What are they for? Keep you out of the, keep you out of the ditch. That's all they're there for. And you know what? If you're scraping up against the guardrail, you're driving too close. Right? I'm just saying. And so you have this guardrail over here, and it's, thou shalt not murder. And you know, the other one over here, way over here, is thou shalt not commit adultery. And you know what I've discovered, just saying, is there's a lot of room to maneuver between not murdering people and not committing adultery. I found that I'm able to live my life fully without killing people. Isn't this great? Aren't you glad you come to church and learn stuff like this? (laughs) It's not that difficult. The 10 commandments are not that hard. And so Jesus comes along, think about this, Jesus comes along and goes, huh, they weren't that hard, 10 of them, but they still can't keep them. Maybe I'll dumb it down to two. And the two rules were what? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul and all your strength and to love your neighbor as yourself. And then he said this, all the law and the prophets hang on these two. And if you think about it, everything that we are supposed to do morally can be summed up by those two things. That if you love God, you'll not hurt him. And if you love people, you won't hurt them. See, if you love your neighbor, you won't kill him. If you love your neighbor, you won't covet his wife. If you love your neighbor, you won't steal his new TV. And, and so you see, this stuff actually works. It's incredible, right? And so when we talk about wisdom, it's about not keeping a bunch of rules and regulations. It's understanding this, that if we have a knowledge of him and his ways, if we begin to just understand who God is, that's going to give us this wisdom. And we don't even need a bunch of rules and regulations. Love God, love people. And so what God's looking for from us is he's looking for wisdom. He's not looking for us to keep the rules. He's looking for us to have the knowledge of him. When we have the knowledge of him and the knowledge of his ways, you know what happens? We begin to grow in this thing called wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the knowledge of the Holy One brings understanding. And that's why Jesus says, don't memorize the Ten Commandments. Don't memorize scripture. He said, abide in my word. And then you are my disciples indeed. And then you shall know the truth. And then the truth shall set you free. Let's stand together, shall we? If you'd like a booklet to help you understand more about God's gift of forgiveness and reconciliation through Jesus Christ, please contact us, and we'd be happy to send you a free copy of the Book of Hope. Visit our website at www.churchoftherock.ca Thank you for watching, and God bless you.